It's good to hear congregation singing. Two new songs for me. Two that I'd never heard before, never sung before. So I do like to learn new songs. That's a good thing. And I've only been an Adventist how long? 40 years or something? Maybe not that long. Well, good morning to everybody. We have some guests here today. I want to welcome them to the Anderson Seventh-day Adventist Church. We are doing a series through the book of Acts. Acts of the Apostles. Some want to rename it Acts of the Holy Spirit. So we will be speaking about um, the Holy Spirit today. And it looks like some of you have a lot of questions on this topic, and I'm, if I had a little bit more time this morning, I might want to explore that with the congregation. Um, but you can talk with me privately if you want me to deal with something specific on the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts does cover a lot of different aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit, who is the third person of the Godhead. Let's bow our heads as we open God's Word. Gracious God, we thank you for this beautiful Sabbath day, for all of your good gifts towards us. We need help to understand your word, and we certainly need help to know how to apply it to our lives. So please send your Holy Spirit to be our guide and to be our teacher today. And through this message, Lord, may you reign supreme in our lives, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. For those of you that were here last week, we were in Ephesus. We are still in Ephesus. And last week, we primarily talked about a man called Apollos. And if you remember carefully, Apollos was somebody who had um, listened to the teaching of, of who? John the Baptist. And as eloquent and as learned as Apollos was, he was defective in his understanding. And so I asked you the question, in what way do you think he was defective? Because the Scriptures doesn't clearly tell us what that would be. So we made some educated guesses. We figured, well, he certainly would be uh, defective in his understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit. Probably the fact that Christ had ascended to heaven, been glorified, and poured his Spirit out, which is really what Pentecost is, is about. So, and some other areas possibly too. And we find that when his understanding was, was clarified, that he went out preaching, and, and it says there in um, chapter 18, on arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So his understanding was more complete, and he could give a more powerful and forceful presentation. Now we go to chapter 19. While Apollos was at Corinth, 
where he seems to have done very well, been certainly welcomed by a certain segment of the church there, and was having a fruitful ministry, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. So I did mention Ephesus uh, last week briefly, large metropolitan area, very significant strategically as far as spreading the gospel. And the scriptures say there he found some, what does your translation say? There he found some disciples. Now you have to think, what does that mean? And he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That's a translation in the NIV. And if you look at it in the authorized version, the King James Version, it will be worded somewhat differently. I want us to use our imagination just for a moment. We think of the Apostle Paul suddenly appearing in the Palisadro Church, in the Reading Church, in the Anderson Church, in the Red Bluff Church. And he asks you a question as he comes into the Anderson Church this morning. He looks around and he's looking for certain characteristics in God's people. Now the text does not tell us what that was any more than it told us in chapter 18 where Apollos lacked. But he looks around and he sees something's missing. There is a lack. There's something amiss. So again, I ask you the question, very similar to last week. What would that something be? Well, it's a little easier to answer that this morning. But just before we do answer it from Scripture, is he looking for joy? Is he looking for peace? Is he looking for the spiritual gifts in these approximately 12 disciples? Is he looking for something that was specifically mentioned right at the beginning of our study at 9.30, our Bible study at 9.30 this morning? Is he looking for the assurance, the confidence of salvation? Well, what does the text say? He asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Hmm, I would like to know more about this situation. And as you often find in Scripture, you almost have more questions than answers. And I've thought long and hard on this passage. 
and I'm not sure that I have a full understanding of what really was going on. Can anyone be called a disciple, a believer, if they don't have the Holy Spirit? In Romans 8, verse, chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says, if we do not have the Spirit of God, we are none of His. So that seems to be a, an essential ingredient to truly be called a disciple or a believer of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we, for example, worked our way through the Old Testament, would we find any information about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? Yes, you shouldn't hesitate on that. That's an easy question, an easy answer. Yes, lots of information on the Holy Spirit. What about the book of Joel? In the last days, your sons and your daughters be anointed with the Spirit. They shall prophesy and so on and so forth. There's many, many, even in the book of Genesis, right at the beginning of our Bible, it talks of the Spirit of God hovering over the waters there. Well, well let's take John the Baptist. Is there anything in his ministry that would tell us about the Holy Spirit? Well, I think I referred to something last week. Let's uh, refer to it again in um, the book of uh, John. This is a passage I didn't take you to last week, so let's look at that one. John chapter 1. You know, there are some scholars that believe there was a, a big John Baptist movement and that not all of them gravitated towards Jesus. They held on to their, their as John as their leader. And, um, but we just really don't have a lot of, lot of, lot of information. Um, Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to every man who's coming into the world. He was in the world and through the world was made, though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Came to that which was his own, his own did not receive him, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, and so on and so forth. Verse 15, John testifies concerning him, crying out, This is he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From his fullness of grace we have received. And if we carry on going through this chapter, I probably shouldn't read all of these verses, it'll take, it'll take too long. Uh, we see in verse 19, for example, John's testimony, when the Jews, they asked him, well, are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you this? Are you that? He said, no, he's always pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist was raised up by God to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. What I want you to see here, I think, is very crucial to our passage in Acts chapter 19, um, this morning, and we're going to pick it up, uh, verse 32, John gave this testimony, I saw the Spirit 
come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. I wouldn't have known him except the one who sent me to baptize with water told me the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. What we have here, and we could look at other passages that I mentioned last week in, in chapter 3 of Matthew and, and in Mark, I believe probably chapter 1, where, where John again is referred to and he says, I have a certain baptism. And it's a baptism of repentance. What does that mean? It means that people heard John preach about this coming Messiah. They were, he, he must have been a powerful preacher as far as convicting people of sin in their lives. And when they were convicted and wanted the forgiveness of those sins, then he baptized them in the Jordan River, which, by the way, is running pretty dry these days. So if you make a trip, if you jump on a plane and go over there, don't be disappointed with the, with the water level. I have warned you, it's getting pretty low. The Jordan River. But it's not just enough to get baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. There needs to be a fuller understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. There needs to be a spirit anointing. John is saying in these passages that I'm mentioning, I can give, offer a certain baptism, but what is needed is a baptism of the Holy Spirit, and there's only one person that can do that, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So, back to our passage in Acts chapter 19. No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So, Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? Think of yourself in this church. Think of new faces coming. Now, if 12 Approximately 12 new faces came into our church. We'd all be kind of looking around. Whoa, what's going on? Right? But then as you start out observing these people, you see that something is missing. Something is lacking. At least as far as first century Christianity is concerned. And that's why I asked the question, what do you think's missing? Is it joy, peace, spiritual gifts, assurance, the power of the Holy Spirit, understanding the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ? What really would it be? Paul explains it this way. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Verse 4, he told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. So then the question comes to my mind, did they misunderstand that? Or did they have just this very fragmentary understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do they know something about his life? Hard for me to imagine that they don't know something about that. It's not so hard for me to understand this, that they misunderstood the significance of his death. Most Christians today misunderstand the significance of Jesus' death. 
And an awful lot of people today, an awful lot of believers today, completely miss this new age of the Holy Spirit. We are living in a new era, in a new age. Do you like that phrase, new age? Ah, it kind of scares you a little bit, huh? Kind of scary term. Well, there was a new age before the new age that you worry about. A new era, a new epoch. It was always predicted in Scripture that Messiah would come. It looks like not too many were really studying and ready for that appearing of Messiah, but eventually he did come. Did he complete the work he was supposed to do? Well, did he live the perfect life? Did he die the death on the cross? Was the, was the death on the cross accepted by God the Father? Yes, yes, yes. How do we know? Well, he was raised from the dead. So you have to ask yourself, how much of this did these followers of John the Baptist understand? Again, you have to read between the lines. Use your sanctified imagination. And I certainly believe that the part they didn't understand is this Lord Jesus Christ ascended up to heaven. It was a new era for Jesus, a new age for Jesus. He has this glorified human body. He ascends up to heaven, and all of heaven throws a party in celebration. Seventh-day Adventists need to throw more parties need to have more joy. Even celebration has become a dirty word in the Seventh-day Adventist church in some circles. The joy, the freedom, the assurance, the peace, that glow on the face that people know they've been with Jesus. And so it's the task of the Lord Jesus Christ, it seems to me, and as his way of celebrating, he pours out this glorious gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' ministry has to continue. So the third person of the Godhead is the one to continue the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you and I come to belief and to trust in Jesus, and when you and I are anointed by that same Holy Spirit that Jesus was anointed with, then we share in the work, in the ministry of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. What a privilege. If ever you get discouraged, and I guess we all do at certain times, try and wrap your, mount, your mind around the significance of what it means to be in Christ. It doesn't just mean your sins are forgiven. John taught about that. And that obviously was not enough. You are transferred into a new realm, the realm of Christ. And if you're in the realm of Christ, you're in the realm of the Holy Spirit. And so John's baptism is limited. It was a baptism of repentance. 
He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That is in Jesus. You want to know about Jesus? There's no better teacher than Paul. So though it doesn't quite say it here, I think he gave them a great Bible study on Jesus. Don't you think so? Because, hey, these people are going to get baptized. And Jesus is going to all the world. It's the Great Commission. Again, they wouldn't have understood that either, but Paul understood that. Go into all the world and do what? Preach, teach all, all things. Don't skip anything. It doesn't have to be six months long. It doesn't have to be 12 months long. Get the instruction in there. People need to know what it's all about, what Jesus is all about, and what his life is all about. So they must have, must have had this instruction from Paul. And the text says, on hearing this about Jesus, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Now let's be careful here. And I think this is a passage, as many of them are in Acts, where you do have to do a lot of thinking it's very easy to jump to wrong conclusions, especially on some of these, these uh, narrative, these stories that are, that are being told there. Um, we, we have to ask ourselves, well, the laying on of hands, the speaking in tongues. Yeah, we're going to get to that. The prophesying. How normative is this? Is this what we should be experiencing in these Seventh-day Adventist churches, in the church family? And we don't. You're going to have to do some, some good Bible study to figure out the answer to some of those things. Now, I don't think anybody in this room needs to be convinced that when you believe in Jesus Christ, what's the next step? The next step? Before I fall, baptism. That's not hard, is it? Baptism. It should be so obvious if you know just a little bit of the New Testament. Just look at the life of Jesus. He was sinless. Why did he get baptized? So, someone who truly believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will run to the water. Hopefully. Now, I have known Christians who have been really reluctant to get baptized. I remember one gentleman I visited in England. Did you ever see those programs or hear about these things about people who like to hoard? Ever heard that? Well, I went into one of those homes once in England. They had papers up to the ceiling, from floor to ceiling, and you kind of walked in like a penguin just trying to get in there, find some space. But this gentleman seemed very, very sincere. He was always at the second-hand bookstores buying Christian books and literature and educating. I mean, he was really, he really knew quite a lot. Um, had to admire him for that. But you talk about digging your heels in as far as baptism is concerned. He dug his heels in. So that was the first time I'd ever come across that in my... Uh, Christian life, some Christian who's certainly taught the talk, and I had no reason to think he wasn't sincere, still don't doubt that, 
but so reluctant to be baptized, not because of phobias about water or anything like that, just, hey, I know I'm saved. And I couldn't doubt it, and I didn't doubt it. I know I was saved before I ever got baptized. I've never doubted that for a second, and I didn't doubt it in that man's life either. I wanted to believe it's true. But if you're saved, surely you should want to do good works for God and get baptized. Well, lo and behold, I nearly fell over one day when who should walk into church with his towel under his arm but this gentleman. And that was one interesting moment. So I know God's Spirit. And I know that we don't live in a world, certainly the world of God is a mysterious world, right? So we don't want to just package away the Holy Spirit in such a way that we, we take away the, the mystery, the variety of how he can express himself. But I think it's quite normative to think that a person who truly believes and trusts in Jesus Christ should want to get baptized. Let me ask you a question. How do we baptize someone? Do we pull a bottle out of our pocket and sprinkle them on the head? And how old should they be? And what should they know? All of those questions come up, or should come up, when we think about um, baptizing people. Now, in Scripture, we don't have any emphasis on age that I'm aware of, but we do have a strong emphasis on instruction. And of course, I've quoted to you the very words of Jesus in the Great Commission, teaching all things. So there is instruction before baptism, and there's certainly a lot of instruction after baptism. So in this church, and in most Seventh-day Adventist churches, we actually have a baptistry. This is what it is here. This is not just a nice piece of furniture. We actually can fill it up with water. Is that right, George? Yeah, we gave a good dunking to George. So we believe in immersion, being immersed underneath. And Paul will take that imagery of going down into the water in the book of Romans when he's talking about living this Christian life. He'll take that illustration, that metaphor, going down into the water, uh, dying like to sin, to the old life, and coming up into newness of life. That's what I mean by the new age, new era idea. And that's just what they want to do. These people are excited. They've they've heard about Jesus and the fulfillment of Jesus. The, The last pieces of the puzzle have been put together, and they just want to get baptized. And so that's what they do. They were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, then something only the name of Jesus. So I've also come across that. Pastor, will you baptize me only only in the name of Jesus. How would you handle that? You all know what the pastor should be doing, don't you? How would you handle that one? Well, I think most Seventh-day Adventist pastors would feel comfortable saying, hey, Jesus spelt it out in Matthew 28 in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when Paul placed his hands on them, what happened? 
What does the text say? Verse 6. The Holy Spirit came on them. So therefore, should I conclude that the Holy Spirit doesn't come unless Paul's around? Or the apostles are around? Or unless somebody lays hands on somebody else? Can you see how easy it is to fall into the ditch on these things? Very, very easy to draw wrong conclusions. In my notes, I put down that the relationship between baptism and the demonstration of the Holy Spirit's presence is viewed in different ways in the book of Acts. And most of those passages, in fact, all of those passages we have dealt with here, you can receive the Holy Spirit at baptism. You can receive the Holy Spirit before baptism, which is what happened to me. And you can receive the Holy Spirit after baptism. Now this is one big issue. And if you have any Pentecostal friends, and we all should have Pentecostal friends, don't you think so? You'll find that they believe, most of them believe, in two stages. They believe in the stage of kind of getting saved, and like I said, the forgiveness of your sins and and so on, and they also believe in a later work of the Holy Spirit, which is where you receive the gift of tongues. How do you feel about that? Two stages, one stage. How can you be a Christian without the Holy Spirit? We've already briefly talked about that, Romans 8, 9. And I do think it's important, as I've mentioned, to to not get hung up on just one way of looking at these things. Because if we have different examples in the book of Acts, before, during, or after baptism, then we shouldn't just go for one of those options. I know in my own experience that When I was saved, there was no Christian that I knew on planet Earth. It was God and me and the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit had been working and working probably for for many years on my life, getting me to hunger and thirst after these things, to search, to probe, to question, At some point, as I got into the Word of God, being aware of sin and how it alienates us from God, and then finally coming to that point of saying yes to Jesus in whatever form that takes. It doesn't have to be a verbal thing. I can't remember with me that it was. But suddenly the Holy Spirit came upon me, knew nothing about churches, church buildings, denominations, baptistries, Jordan River, or anything. 
But Pastor, haven't you read about some of those things in the Bible? Yeah, I guess I had, but a lot that I read didn't stick. I didn't understand. Do you know the Holy Spirit? He's the real soul winner. He's the real soul winner. So it gets me to that point, and you get this tremendous anointing with the Holy Spirit where you have a sense of oneness with God. Sins are forgiven. You know that so for such certainty. Peace, joy. And the next morning, off to work, telling everyone about Jesus. But then, trying to live the Christian life and trying to figure it out, and then realizing, and the Holy Spirit brings you to this realization that you need a church family. You need instruction. You need encouragement. And hey, you need to be baptized. So he gets you to where he wants you to be. And then at the baptism, another outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Does it stop there? Is it only the baptism of the Holy Spirit when we get saved, when we get baptized? No! There should be many outpourings of the Holy Spirit in our life. I've experienced outpourings of the Holy Spirit when I've been on my knees in prayer on a hard tile floor with a bunch of pastors. God's Spirit, and we should conclude this from the book of Acts, can manifest Himself in lots of different ways. Now, there may be some reasons that are not so obvious to us why hands have to be laid on these individuals. What is, what is that saying? Now, we do have a history of laying on of hands in the Scriptures, old and new. But what does it signify? Is it, is it signifying that these, these people are bona fide Christians? So think of the significance for that if you're in a Jewish setting where, where you've always called these Gentiles dogs and vermin. They don't have the law. They don't know anything. Salvation is of the Jews. Forget about these wild dogs called Gentiles. Problem is, that's the main population on planet Earth. So God can't forget about them, and God made promises to them as He made promises to Jews. So this is a very powerful, traumatic thing when, when these different groups are joining the church. And we've seen some of that as we've worked our way through the book of Acts. Maybe, possibly, this is another example. It certainly seems a little bit unusual to us as Seventh-day Adventists that only when Paul lays hands on do they uh, get baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit. And how do we know that that really happened? Well, they spoke in tongues, which means languages, and they prophesied. But pastor, and certainly I can say this to myself, you've been anointed in the Holy Spirit, and I hope every person in this room who is trusting in Jesus Christ can say for sure that you received the Holy Spirit when you believed in Jesus Christ. Why shouldn't we say that? But some people believe like Satan, right? Doesn't the devil believe? Is he saved? Does, is he filled with the Holy Spirit? Obviously not. So there's a right way and there's a wrong way to believe. 
cannot just be an intellectual thing. It cannot just be that, yes, I know God exists. Yes, I know what the Bible says. It tells me that Jesus died for my sins. There has to be a response of the heart. There has to be a surrendering of the will to God. And how wonderful that is. Is it scary to surrender to God? Does God have all of you this morning? Or is there something missing, as there was with these disciples? This is happening in Ephesus. We have the whole book of Ephesians, six chapters, one of my favorite books, just powerful, some of the highest teaching on the work of Christ anywhere in Scripture. Pretty hard to beat the book of Ephesians. But let me take you to another passage right at the end of your Bible. Grab a Bible. We'll make this our final passage this morning. Chapter 2. Oh, I didn't say the book? Right at the back of your Bible. Didn't, didn't, you, didn't you get the code language? I'm speaking in code symbols this morning. All right, Revelation chapter 2. And as, I, as we go through this passage real quick and wind up this sermon, I really want you to search your heart and be honest with yourself and see whether this message given to these people in Ephesus, by the way, in the book of Ephesians, there's very little critique of these church members. Ephesians is a very upbeat, powerful message to these church members. But here there is a rebuke. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. So this was a church that believed in standards, this is a church that knew how to work hard. This is not a church family that was slacking off. You have tested those who claim to be apostles, kind of like the Bereans, and are not, and have found them false. And you have persevered. You've endured hardships for my name. You have not grown weary. Wouldn't you like Jesus to say that about you? I know I would. And yet I hold this against you. And this part I don't want him to say against me. You have forsaken your first love. How is your love relationship with Jesus Christ? Is there any passion there? Maybe as there was at first? Are you cultivating that relationship? Any love relationship has to be cultivated. You can't take time off with Jesus. You need to open the Word of God. You need to immerse yourself in it. That takes time. That takes effort. You need to have these love encounters with Jesus experientially. We should all be able to talk about the moving of the Holy Spirit in our life. And yet, it's rare language in some 
church circles. And here, I think, in this verse, it just about hits the nail right on the head. Jesus is saying, you've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. And if you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Seems obvious to me that you can have many things that you stand for in your Christian life that are clearly encouraged in the Word of God and hear the words of Jesus. He's commending these Ephesians for numerous character traits that they had. But they'd missed the most important thing, which was that love for Jesus. You can have all the standards in the world, folks, but you can also become rigid and hard and cruel and legalistic in the standards that you have. Make sure that they're the standards of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the supreme one is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. Everything is secondary to that one important thing. Do we want, do we want the light of the gospel to be snuffed out in the Anderson Church? Go to Ephesus if you can manage it. Go around the seven church sites and find out how many Christians there are around there. Very, very few. Summit to think about. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that this relationship with you is based on love from beginning to end and throughout eternity. Lord, show us how to love you as you deserve to be loved. We have so much that we're grateful for. Our sins being forgiven, clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, so many blessings. Let's not take them for granted, Lord. May your Holy Spirit move throughout this church family, be with our guests that are here today. If there is somebody that has never surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ, may they do it right now while they have that opportunity. And those of us that have known you for a while, Lord, may we guard the edges of this relationship with you. Forgive us, Lord, if we become hard and cynical Soften this heart of ours so that your love can reign supreme and show us how to love one another is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.